Welcome to CAA Conversations. My name is Steve Rossi. I'm an assistant professor and the sculpture program head at St. Joseph's University. In this conversation, I'm speaking with Lauren Weirdy and Emma Wilcox. As nonprofit gallery co-directors and artists with dedicated creative practices themselves, they each have a unique vantage point on the topic of studio art professional practices curriculum. Lauren Weirdy is an artist, educator, and curator living and working in Philadelphia. She has been a co-director at Ortega E. Gasset Projects, an artist-run curatorial collective and nonprofit in Brooklyn, New York since 2017, and currently teaches 2D design, color, painting and drawing courses at the University of the Arts and Tyler School of Art and Architecture in Philadelphia. Emma Wilcox is the co-director and co-founder of the nonprofit art space Gallery of Pharaoh in Newark, New Jersey. In her own creative practice, Emma is interested in the various ways that land is marked, be it chemically, visually, or textually. Taken primarily within a five-mile radius of Newark, her haunting, enigmatic photographic images suggest multiple narratives, hinting at crime, destruction, and violence. Though often dark, both visually and conceptually, the work has an underlying note of resilience and perseverance. In the first half of our conversation, we discuss the history and founding of each art space, along with Emma and Lauren's organizational roles. We move on to discussing the nuts and bolts of general professional practices skill sets, discuss how failure can be framed as a creative act, then discuss various employment opportunities that we've each explored along with advice that we offer students preparing to enter the visual arts field. Emma, what is the founding reason for the start of Gallery of Pharaoh in Newark? And could you share a little background on the origin of the Gallery of Pharaoh name? So Gallery of Pharaoh was started by myself and my partner, Yvonne M. Davis. We met in art school, um, like so many other good experiments. Um, and I always start by saying that we were in our early 20s. And uh, when you're about to leave formal art education, if you've been able to access it at all, um, there's this cliff that you can see that you're about to fall off of where you're going to lose access to the resources that have enabled you to make your work. So there was this intense concern for resources for ourselves and people like us, um, emerging artists. And um, even if we didn't necessarily have very formal language yet for it, um, which we would get later from um, exposure to uh, progressive museum educators and other folks like that, there was a kind of intense instinctive desire to create um, a more accessible space, a space where ideas could be experimented with in public, where ordinary people, including our own family, would feel welcome um, visiting and engaging with the space. So there were these sort of two really intense desires that sort of provoked us starting an alternative space. And the name is a Portuguese idiom. We were started in a Portuguese neighborhood in Newark, the Ironbound. And what I love about idioms is everyone um, defines them slightly differently, but it uh, suggests this idea of um, pharaoh is a little bit like the Latin word ferrous for iron. And it kind of connotes bound or chained, almost welded to a very difficult or impossible idea to achieve. So we didn't know it yet, but it was really the perfect name 20 years later. Nice. 
Can you could you talk a little bit about because I know in previous conversations, uh, the punk rock DIY ethos and anarchist organizing principles comes up a lot in, in the conversations around how you see kind of the organizational structure for the gallery functioning. Can you talk a little bit about kind of those influences and, and how you've tried to take them and embody them with with how you're how you um, are working with the gallery? Absolutely. The thing that I see now uh, is that language can help us connect across uh, differences and distance, or it can be this barrier. And so in talking about the idea of of punk rock, sort of helping us figure out uh, what to do and how to do it, um, and even DIY, which is, of course, an acronym, I, I want to shout out uh, my late colleague, Jerry Gant, who was a pretty legendary Newark artist who passed away a few years ago because he was um, doing work and living, of course, we were all living illegally in the same building that we started a pharaoh in. He was one of the first people we met when we came to Newark. And I remember talking with Jerry and he said, when you say punk rock, it's just a word. It's almost just a sound. Like it doesn't necessarily mean anything to me, or it might mean something to me that is not at all what you're thinking. That might just mean like a bunch of sweaty dudes in a basement. And I was talking about the idea of being able to accomplish things with your friends and outside of formal institutional structures not uh, wanting anything from the authorities, certainly not expecting anything from the authorities. Um, and just that kind of um, subcultural perspective on making something out of nothing. And he said, well, that's hip hop to me. Mm, we right. just have this exchange of, of language. Mm -hmm. And I've thought about that a lot ever since um, because I think what we were envisioning uh, was a little bit like an artist co-op, like a workers cooperative of some kind. And words like that have been co-opted in some cases. So um, you you really have to define what they mean to you and to mm -hmm. the, the people that you're um, you're trying to share um, your your sort of dream with. So in thinking about the idea of a DIY ethos now, there's always this longing to uh, address the problem. And I think as you get older, you start seeing how generations of activists um, before you have grappled with intensely similar problems. So the tri-state area is scattered with the remnants of a a pretty red, a pretty kind of communist uh, approach to artist organizing, even the idea of an artist guild, which sounds um, kind of quaint to our modern ears now, um, that emerges from a kind of 1930s ethos, you know, that can be traced back to very specific political thought, mm -hmm. um, a slightly more a modern example that doesn't get talked about as much as say, you know, the WPA era is the CETA program, which ran in the um, late seventies and ended uh, in 1982 with Reagan. Um, that was the Comprehensive Employment and Training Act, mm. um, which inadvertently seeded uh, an enormous amount of experimental artistic work and led to the founding of City Without Walls, which is another mm -hmm. alternative space in Newark. Mm -hmm. So, with, you know, with, a long, with another long history as well. 
Yeah. So even within the most sort of um, vanilla membership organization for artists, there may be the seeds of, of this effort to grapple with these issues of access and resources. It's interesting to draw a lineage between labor guilds and um, and nonprofit artist run spaces, too. I think that's an interesting connection where there's a lot of shared shared similarities. Um uh, Lauren, what is the founding reason for the start of Ortega y Gasset in Brooklyn? And could you talk a little bit about the influence of the Spanish philosopher's famous phrase, I am myself and my circumstances, as it relates to the mission of the gallery? Sure. Um, Ortega y Gasset Projects was founded 10 years ago. Um, I think Lisa Mexen was the person that really started it and invited others to be a part of it. I think she was really traveling and there were artists that she was connecting with across the country and wanted to continue the artistic conversations, the studio conversations and lead that into curatorial and experimental projects. So it it really was founded as uh, a place where artists were already from all over. <laughs> and I think that that has really helped our programming stay fresh and mm. um, while co-directors have changed across the decade, I think that that's actually been really refreshing for us too, to help us evolve as we move along. Mm -hmm. And the quote, I am myself and my circumstances, I think just something that everyone could rally around. It, it speaks to the fact that we want autonomy in our curatorial practices. So when we get to have shows as our co-directors or put shows together, it can be anything. We don't have any rules or expectations or real philosophies about what that work should be like, besides giving the curator freedom and the artist freedom to experiment. So I think that was just something that everybody could get behind and it could, um, I think, just fill out everyone's needs. Mm -hmm. And how would you characterize your your co-director role with the gallery? I was invited to join in 2017. And I think because I was I was doing a lot of scrappy DIY exhibitions myself. And I think that just aligns with, with our mission and the fact that it's a bunch of artists doing a lot of the legwork to get these labors of love projects going. Um, what I end up doing at OIG, since I live in Philadelphia and we're based in Brooklyn is a lot of uh, bookkeeping, accounts work, and <laughs> all that fun financial stuff. <laughs> and you were you were mentioning one of the um, the real assets for the code the the sort of the split responsibility of the co director role is this ability to really have a wide um, network with a lot of varied skills that everybody can kind of bring in and contribute in ways that um, that make sense for kind of what their background and what their training is. Yeah, absolutely. And it has to do with with the distance too. So it, it's really great to have about half of our co-directors in New York who can help um, pick up shipped work, install exhibitions and have meetings in person or open the gallery up by appointment. And then there are those of us who don't live in the city that, that do all of those computer-based or remote tasks and mm. um, and then we all get to collaborate on exhibitions and have our own shows as well. So it, it feels very supportive to have everyone with different specialized skills that that serves the those greater projects. 
it's interesting also to to differentiate the the type of work that everybody's doing based on their uh, proximity to the physical gallery space as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we try to be very practical. <laughs> um, a question for each of you: uh, What does the nonprofit gallery work facilitate, and what, if anything, does it conflict with for you and your individual practices? Lauren, you want to go ahead with that? Sure. I mean, for me. I'm an adjunct teacher at two different schools in Philadelphia. I have my own studio practice and I work with OIG. So all of it is about time, trying to figure out how to have time for the studio, how to have time for your own work, as well as, as these other elements that, that ultimately feed into my studio practice, but also, you know, it, it, any, any element can really take over your, your time very easily. So it, it's, um, just becomes a challenge to balance it or, or let, let things flow as they need to. Mm -hmm. Time's always the most precious resource, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Something that I've been saying um, to students and, and even colleagues when I'm asked to speak about this is um, I think if I hadn't done what I did with my life in terms of being part of such a long-lived alternative space, um, because because of being involved with the Pharaoh, I am both in some way, I'm both more than I would be and also somewhat less than what I would be as an artist. Mm. Um, and I think there's um, a lot of reluctance in the sector to speak honestly um, about the idea that it isn't always possible to have it all at any particular moment. Um, the mentorship that we were able to access as a, a pretty new um, organization, the uh, EDs that we would connect with were, were largely um, artists and very passionate and dedicated people. And I noticed there was a bit of a disconnect between what they would um, speak about in public and in more private intimate settings, there would be um, an element of, of melancholy or reflection on how much they had sort of poured into the artist community they served and ways in which their own practice had suffered. Mm -hmm. um, not necessarily rancor, but just a, a broader array of emotions um, doing a Pharaoh was the grad school I didn't go to. It gives you this, um, absolutely insatiable curiosity about the world and how it functions, which is incredibly good for a practice like mine. Uh, I make long-term photographic projects that connect with a lot of issues around land use politics and environmental justice and the sort of long arc of, um, local history, so being involved with every kind of story and local level um, moment when issues came to some kind of boil um, and meeting so many different kinds of activists, that wouldn't have happened if I had kind of stayed just within um, the notion of working within the art world. If Pharaoh got me into a much larger community and context, um, it you know gives you an interest in everything from tax abatements to uh, you know elements of the humanities that I don't think I would have been able to connect with as richly. Mm -hmm. um, 
we ended up doing projects that essentially functioned as an education for me, a really priceless education. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, I think a lot of nonprofit work is very, um, very classed and very gendered. And um, the power dynamics there are really overdue for a sort of mass um, overhaul and overthrow. So it it can be difficult to see some people give so much and other people um, be very, very, very protective of their own practices and um, give less. And again, even saying that out loud in this podcast, I feel like that's a real taboo. But um, sometimes the conflict is um, real and painful, but at the same time, a sort of priceless real world education was yeah. something that I was my privilege to access. Yeah, within the realm of uh, nonprofit um, gallery um, directors, there's often a, a lot of turnover in that in that position. And um uh, both OIG and Afero uh, seem to have found models that allow allow everybody to sort of share the responsibilities in a way that's su- sustainable for the the people involved, um, and especially Afero with twenty years of a uh, history, um, that's definitely you know the marathon of of nonprofit um, artist run lifespans, and so it's exciting to see that uh, continuing. Uh, so as artists and educators and gallery directors with a lot of experience developing your own careers and with experience working with many artists to curate and facilitate exhibitions, what type of content do you each think should be included in a course focusing on professional practices for young artists? So I have a feeling that certain um, words are going to be repeated over and over again in the next 10 minutes. Um just talking about really practical and actionable things has always been my strategy. Um, if you don't break down exactly what you're saying into manageable um, tasks, uh, I think it's very uh, disempowering for students if it just sounds like this enormous, vague, boulder that you have to run up a hill. So um, I'm, I'm interested in an approach that's, um, that's very doable, no matter how many different day jobs that you have, or how many um, hours of caregiving activity you may have in your life. Um, So just breaking, breaking things down into even um, absurdly tiny components. I I think that's the most empowering approach. So um, yeah, I, I feel like also um, reminding students that the value of diversified income as it relates to, say, three or four part-time jobs that give you a little bit of uh, flexibility, as opposed to looking for sort of that one um, dedicated full-time job that that's going to um, kind of uh, meet all your needs is kind of a really good strategy um, to think about. And so I, I, always, I always try to remind students about that as well as that the, the role of supporting oneself um, in the visual arts is you have to be as resourceful as you would be within your own studio practice as you're sort of thinking about um, how to kind of put these different pieces together. Absolutely. You don't get to be a civilian. Um, You won't necessarily do with your weekends what other people do or with your evenings what other people get to do. Um, And I think most people have already figured that out um, probably at a, a pretty tender age. Um, 
uh, taking apart your goals and figuring out what resources you need for them sounds really kind of arid and corporate, but it's not. Um, just diagramming the sentence, I want to continue making my work and mm-hmm. figuring out where do you need to be to do that. Um, that lets you also make sure you, you know you reject assumptions. You you might really need a studio outside of your residence. You might not. That might have more to do with the idea of, you know, the image of being an artist versus actually making your work. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you need access to media specific facilities and what are you going to need to do to get access to them? Time, money, barter, building them yourself, uh, whatever is entailed. Um, Do you need to work in community? Sometimes figuring out sort of who or where your community is, is is a little Mm -hmm. tricky for folks. Yeah. that's true because especially in like a college context, the community is kind of built in. It's ready-made. Mm-hmm. And, so, um, and so thinking about how you can be proactive about sort of accessing a, a pre-existing community or or building one or starting starting to think about the steps of building one, it's such an important part of like really being able to sustain that sense of um, of being kind of productive and not burning yourself out and losing interest along the way. I mean, I think one really important thing is just demystifying the whole process because students have, you know, they see their teachers, they see famous artists, and they think there's this this leap in in terms of what a student to a professional is. And so I I try to be super transparent about what my experience has been like, you know, having jobs that are completely unrelated to art. The reason why I do all the financial stuff at OIG is because I, my first job out of college was as a bookkeeper. Mm. So, you know, like finding these jobs, we're all intelligent people. We are artists because we choose to be, not because we can't do anything else. So Mm. how do you start to build those practical skills? What makes sense for you individually in terms of your practice and what you want to do outside of it? And, Mm. and I really try to talk about my failures too. So you know, like scrolling through the list of of rejected applications or even just showing students how many things someone applies to in a year. Mm-hmm. And that, that varies from person to person and practice to practice, but getting very comfortable with that is so important in order to, to have some resilience. It's not always, you know, it's not always about whether your work is good or not. Um, right, right. Yeah, I really like that talking about about failures as as an empowering act, mm-hmm. um, because all of that stuff gets edited out a lot of times in these uh, breathy stories of overnight success. Um, so just understanding what that looks like, uh, I often will say to students, um, you need to consider there won't be a great deal of external validation for what you're doing or that external validation will come at irregular intervals. Um, It sounds really touchy feely, but just, you know, remember to balance uh, rigor with also being nice to yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, There's other fields where there's more structured opportunities for regular external validation. Mm -hmm. Uh, Your supervisor will give you an annual review and tell you how you're doing. Um, so what we do doesn't tend to come with those sorts of uh, stimuli. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, yeah, there's there's um, there's getting ready and staying ready. And, and interestingly, I think that also connects with the idea of, 
of failures and rejection letters is, mm -hmm. is having your copy work and your verbiage and your documents ready to go. Um, I also use myself as an example a lot where I talk about everything good that I've ever gotten uh, was largely uh, things that I applied for, you know, at 1158 PM <laughs> or on lunch break from one of a million day jobs. Uh, you can tell how old I am because it would be, you know, at a Kinko's um, on a, you know, rented computer. But the, the other part of that story that matters is um, I was ready to go. I had already spent many nights staying up all night editing my verbiage having other people that i trusted look at it everything was sized and labeled so sometimes i could apply last minute or hear about an opportunity um so i hope that that sort of balance of transparency mm -hmm. about um my expectations for myself but also just this sort of careening level of embracing the chaos and going for it hopefully the balance between those two extremes is uh hopeful mm -hmm. yeah. i think also what we're all saying swirls around this idea that that a life making art is not a short-term no thing at all it's really a long game and everything that you do is not going to be linear it's not going to just keep going up and up and up <laughs> it's going to be a little rocky and there there are just so many things that get in the way of of art making but but that can still be fulfilling to to make that time to um build that resilience and even if you get some failures mm-hmm yeah, I think I think that failure conversation is a is such a an important one, um, especially in that that realm of, you know, where, where students as they're starting their art careers early on are very hungry for that positive affirmation, um, and then it's I feel like it's really important to just bring to their attention um, that that's not the guide that you really need to be following. That that's going to come, but it's going to be a much smaller percentage of what you're used to and sort of the college context and, um, and really being okay with that idea of like, you know, it's really about, you know, the um, putting out a far more than you're going to be getting back, but you have to sort of pace yourself too, so that you're not, you're not um, um, expending all of your energy in um, kind of uh, areas that aren't, aren't necessarily the most strategic um, so yeah, the, as, as you mentioned, Emma, um, having all of your materials in place, like the artist statements and the bios and the documentation. Um, and, and when I, when I teach the professional practices class at St. Joseph's, we'll always try to have the students apply for exhibitions and apply for a residency and, and actually go through like the areas where you'd be able to research, um, those different opportunities and really to, as you, as we've all been talking about, just getting comfortable with the idea of just getting it out there. You know, you're not really worrying about that first, um, the, those successes coming back to you um, right away, um, but just sort of being okay and like sitting with that and, and being comfortable with that. It's, um, again, this sort of privilege of being on the side of the fence, man, I'm mixing metaphors this morning, being on the side of the fence where you're seeing people's applications come in that was really eye-opening for me in the early part of a pharaoh and to this day i mean just last month um the 
quality of the copy work coming in for a very well-paid commission project that I was sitting on a, a panel for was just making me want to cry. Mm. Um, and I, I want to go back to my community and say, when the copy work is bad, for, for example, it's like your advocate's hands are tied. Mm. You have to have those assets in reasonable working order. Um, no matter the the absolute passion of the people in your corner, um, that's just how it works. Mm -hmm. So as much as it, um, I feel like I'm probably repeating myself sometimes with this issue. It's it's just you know it's like having the crowbar to get the door open. You mm -hmm. need to have those materials, yeah. um, and that tends to um, segue really nicely into talking about what are residencies and what are they good for and how do I find them um, if that's something I'm interested in and how can I find ones that are maybe a little bit more accessible depending on you know what's going on with someone's life. Um, so just hammering on that idea that these materials are sort of what you trade in some ways to get access to more of these resources that you want. And it gets easier, um, when you've had, you know, you know, your, your third person, the three paragraph bio, and you're used to editing it, it just gets easier to, to do more mm -hmm. over time. Yeah. Yeah. And that idea of, of researching an artist who you feel like your work is sort of in sync with in some way, researching their resumes as well and, and looking at the different opportunities that they've applied for and sort of having getting things on your radar in that way. Um, I always find that to be a helpful tip as well. Yeah, I think, you know, like Emma, my experience of reviewing applications for OIG has been so important in, in helping me articulate to students what, what makes a good application. And I've worked on a project with another colleague at Tyler, Gerard Brown, where we took applications from, you know, blocking everybody's names and content out, but having students actually jury an, a show of their own or a like a grant of their own. And mm. they are so good at recognizing issues in the writing that, that mm. sound too much like jargon or sound repetitive or not deep enough. Um, Mm. And I have found that exercise to be so helpful in in getting students to see their writing a little bit differently, because mm. I think one issue is that it's so personal that, mm -hmm. that the writing gets weird and and bad very fast <laughs> for some reason when it's about yourself. Yep. Yep. But so, you know, getting to try these exercises where you even look up other people's resumes, other people's applications and see what what good editing looks like or what maybe having a friend help you edit or or write a proposal can can do to help you just make a leap forward yeah. so important that's that's really interesting having the class curate an exhibition based on application mm -hmm. materials um how would you structure that would would the the entire class curate one group exhibition or would each student curate their own exhibition how oh. how we usually do it with essentially a grant proposal. So one project winning the out of the group. So maybe say they get six pieces of writing of proposals. Usually they're they're individual artists, not mm -hmm. not necessarily groups. Mm -hmm. And they all rate them on their own. So really great, middle, really bad. Okay. And inevitably they are all in agreement and 
like there's a very, very clear top two. And, mm. and it's really nice to then break that down, talk about it, evaluate why mm. they're better, and then have them come together and choose between the two, you know, what is the final deciding factor about, yeah. you know, interest, clarity, excitement, or, you know, ambition and things like that too. Yeah, really, that's really interesting. And the applications that you would bring into the class, would they be like um, submissions that you had gotten through the OIG gallery or would they be something that you would have solicited through friends and colleagues? And Not from OIG, they're, they're totally anonymous and you can't tell whose work is whose. And mm -hmm. um, so they come from other sources, but you know, they're just neatly packed together. So you have that like poor, medium and great quality. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a really nice class project idea, too, that really gets everybody kind of like thinking and analyzing and also discussing kind of the merits and then imagining themselves as they're sort of competing in that larger pool outside mm -hmm. of a, a college context. I yeah. think that's um, I think that's a really interesting um, approach. Yeah, I think yeah. it pulls back the curtain a little bit too. It, mm -hmm. it, you know, you don't know what anybody else is writing. It becomes sort of competitive and private in a strange way if you're if you're not open to mm -hmm. to help or um, you know, thinking about it in a more community based way. We did something very similar um, when I was an artist in the marketplace at the Bronx Museum. And um, I think for a while that may have also been part of some of creative capital's approach. I'm not sure at this point. Um, and yeah, it's demystifying. Um, the other thing is it, you, you see that there's multiple strategies that can be effective, which I also think is very empowering. Um, people with really giant external personalities, you know, can see how they can harness that. Um, people who are more introverted or, you know, the stuff is a little bit quieter or more cerebral can figure out how, how they too can do effective marketing. Um, I love this idea of, of weird and bad that it just, it were, we're all kind of listing in that direction sometimes. And the person, uh, who's the reader is, is just sitting there thinking, uh, what is it that you propose to bring into the gallery? Like, what, what is it, you know? <laughs> um, so um, just understanding that there's, there's multiple strategies for a successful outcome beyond the basics of always label your materials. Mm -hmm. And I think it, it's sort of also, um, we you're just starting to touch on that point of like how one sets up their goals and um and what sorts of like what's an achievable goal and what's a what's a goal that um is realistic based on the resources that a person has access to um and in an effort to kind of counter sort of the art market forces itself there's there's two books that i like to bring in to this class context which is uh, lewis hides the gift and then ted purvey's uh, what we want is free generosity and exchange in recent art and so both of those books are are really good frameworks for kind of thinking about, you know, the, uh, one's creative practice, not as a commodity to be bought and sold, but really as something that's, that an artist has an innate gift that, that, and, and a desire and an internal push to sort of share that gift with the world. And that um, if that gift doesn't actually, in, in Lewis Hyde's words, if it, if it doesn't find a receiver, it turns into a certain type of poison, internal poison. And so that responsibility that an artist has to themselves to really try to um, share that creative uh, impulse uh, with the world can take so many different forms. You know, as, as we talk about um, 
um, visual arts circulating within the realm of um, uh, the a commercial art market. That's just one of the possible and um, sort of access points, right? And and I always like to draw students' attention to the to the fact that um, what what we're making. Um, the value is not determined based on um, the sale price, you know, and the sale price and the, the fact that it can be this thing that is bought and sold is not the only value that the work has too. And, and I think sometimes we're so used to hearing about um, the high auction prices and the, that becomes kind of such a headline grabbing topic that it seems like the only value that the work has is translated in dollar signs. And I think it's really worth starting out kind of the, the, professional practices class is really with a larger discussion of like what are our goals and how how can we achieve those goals in a way that um is going to be sustainable for us and also meaningful for us I, mean, I think that also goes into trying to pack some kind of resistance into your practice because if you are only dependent upon the sales of art you may make very different art and you may not grow in the same way as as if you are financially independent of that art, so, or of that kind of sales mm -hmm. idea. And I, I think that being able to build that, those skills in for the long term makes it so that you get to make the art you really need to make and you get to grow at the pace that you need to grow at and, and you can have just a little bit of distance from that capitalistic model. Mm -hmm. I um, was reading an interview with uh, Sarah Schulman recently in Teen Vogue, and I was delighted to see her work being discussed uh, specifically in that kind of outlet, because I thought it would sort of bring some generations together. Um, there's been a lot of revisiting of her book, Gentrification of the Mind. And um, it's there's some real zingers in there uh, that I was just sort of grateful to see Um in a mainstream publication where she was talking about the the mingled sensations of of joy and anger at seeing um inroads being made in large institutions museums um blue chip galleries um publications in terms of a much more diverse array of artists being showcased and she said, you know, it's just spectacular to see opportunities for younger artists, to see recognition of a broader range of people and practices, but um, at the same time, crediting the, the market and its benevolence mm. um, with making these fantastic choices of who to award solo shows and to um, the idea that the apparatus, I, I believe that was her phrase, is so kind mm. and um, insightful and benevolent is not understanding the the push and the decades of alternative practice that have led to this moment. Mm. Um, so whatever moment a young artist is is living in, um, it can be absolutely spectacular to see people that you are inspired by and respect or who might even be your peers. Um, ascending to greater heights of visibility. But if that isn't happening for you, you are yours. Um, it's not because other people are smarter or working harder. It's that there's this apparatus that you're 
contending with. Mm -hmm. Um, And I loved how she put it because, you know, you you can have joy and frustration at the same moment. Thinking about paths for employment. I think that's such an issue for students and and they really want that clarity and they want that full-time job with a 401k and <laughs> and we've we've talked a bit about diversified income and I wonder how you guys would advise young artists what to do or or how to navigate those issues. It's from my perspective it's a, that's a, a tricky question to um to discuss one of the things that I really like about working at St. Joseph's is we have a lot of um, double majors. So we will have students that are doing a major in say biology and an art major. And so they've got their eye, they've kind of got one foot in each door in a sense, and they've got their eye on um, a, a totally separate career path. There's no easy answers. Um I remember a woman that I was in art school with who already was contending with um, pretty significant effects from um, diabetes. And she didn't have the luxury of trying to hack it without healthcare um, that some of us uh, thought we did anyway, um, where you're just sort of uh, hoping that you can kind of win as the clock ticks down. so she needed a more structured situation. Um, it it sounds so nebulous, but I, I think easy prescriptives being given to students, again, is, is not that helpful. Um, some people will thrive in a creative context. Other people, you don't want to be um, doing that with your brain when you're at work. You want a kind of non-art job. Um, And um, sometimes uh, working for uh, other artists is, again, really nourishing. Other times it's it's going to just sort of sap your own practice and um, sort of uh, annex it uh, without you realizing it. Um, Also, just acknowledging people are starting out with different levels of resources. There's a lot of assertive mating that goes on in the art world. People may have family money. So again, I, I just want to encourage people to abandon shame uh, whenever humanly possible. Mm-hmm. Um, if if other people seem to have all figured it out, they they may have um, you know access to to resources that not everyone has, um, and frequently kind of playing it off that they don't. Um, so uh, I think yeah. this has actually been a topic in other uh, college art association podcasts. Is this idea of um, there's no shame in the day job. And, mm-hmm. and just really, I want, I want that to be kind of one of my rallying cries. There, there is no shame in labor. There is no shame in working for a living. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really, it would be great if we all could just do nothing but spend time in the studio, but, but there's, there's dignity in labor. Yeah. Um, I worked as a, a nanny. That was one of my millions of part-time jobs and it wasn't a cute art world job. Um, but it gave me a lot of control over my daytime hours, which uh, enabled all sorts of other opportunities. But I ran into a colleague once in the street and he looked shocked. He said, Emma, I thought you were an academic. And I said, Jim, I thought you were an intellectual. Mm-hmm. The, the sort of failure to, to perceive um, you know, that these labor strategies are perfectly valid if they're contributing to your practice, I, I think we got a ways to go in yeah. that regard. 
from the perspective of teaching sculpture too, in terms of labor and job opportunities, I've had a lot of luck um, with students that have gone through my various sculpture classes that I've taught at various institutions. And they've picked up um, a lot of woodworking skills, a lot of metalworking skills. And then I'll, I'll be able to um, recommend, you know, different opportunities for them to pursue if they're interested in kind of pursuing that line of kind of labor and kind of a, a, a refined skill set mm -hmm. as it relates to kind of like woodworking and metal fabrication or, or like art casting foundries, things like that. Like those are jobs that are, are pretty intensive as far as energy goes. So there's not a lot left at the end of the day or on the weekends for a studio practice, I found in my experience but they can give you phenomenal um, exposure to skill sets and um, uh, sort of in, in kind of industrial processes really that you wouldn't, that you'd be able to expand on um, in a, a far greater, more uh, extensive aspect than what you would be able to touch upon in say a four month um, uh, studio course in metal fabrication or woodworking or something like that. So a few years in a cabinetry shop or uh, at an art casting foundry can really um, give somebody a real insight into different processes that could then also inform their their creative practice. I, so I always find that to be kind of one route that I'll, I'll encourage. Yeah, I mean, I think the key is to be open to possibilities because there isn't a one size fits all answer. And I think there are so many gig economy jobs at this point too that you know, is that a good fit for you in your studio practice because you can have certain days off when you want or is it more beneficial to have that consistent nine to five job, whatever that is? And I, I think being able to, to again, like your applications, go through trial and error in order to find the right job for you is so key too. And that that takes time. And um, as we've all been talking about all of the the many part-time jobs we've all had throughout our careers or, you know, mm -hmm. after school and things like that to, to figure this out. It, it is really a long-term project to find out where you're going and you're not going to know where that's going to end up either. Right. When I look back on all the different types of uh, work that I, that I um, was, was doing sort of in, in the early uh, part of my uh, career, kind of in between undergrad and grad school. And then shortly after grad school, um, I'm actually so grateful on those work experiences and the people that I had an opportunity to work with and, and the um, different um, companies that I had an opportunity to work for um, really gave me like a vast um, perspective on, on, on just so many different things on craft, on the economy um, and, and just still informs my creative practice um, to this day, just, just because of those experiences are so different than the experiences that I've had, you know, as an adjunct professor and, and, um, and as well as kind of in a full-time context, working in an academic realm. Um, and so it, I, I'm, I'm much so grateful for all of those varied work experiences that, that um, have happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Same. I think um, Sharon Loudon has a book living the creative life, which is a good example of, of um, really varied ways in which artists work in order to have a studio practice, whether that's, you know, at UPS or FedEx or whether they're a nurse, or I think it just really runs the gamut of, of really good examples, um, which is nice. Yeah. And, and that's, 
those though thinking thinking kind of expansively and also resourcefully i feel like in the same way that we would approach you know problem in our studio practice yeah i feel like it makes perfect sense to try to think about um, being just as intentional and trying to make a decision with just as much agency as you would try to bring into the problem solving in your own studio practice i think it's kind of like a nice a nice parallel almost to, to be thinking about those those two um, processes yeah absolutely it, again, it sounds really obvious, but um, just um, encouraging people to, while they're also abandoning shame, labeling all their materials and giving themselves some validation from time to time, um, is is be really good to yourself in terms of um, caring for your ideas, writing them down. Um, there is so much beautiful um, feminist testimony from so many different generations of creative women about um sometimes you just lose track of your ideas you you lose them for a minute or for a decade um and if you can hang on to them if you can write them down or do a screenshot of the notes of your phone or what whatever it is um you have them later you can kind of pick that back up um not always but a lot of times, um, I don't think anyone writes more beautifully about that than someone like Hetty Jones. Um, you know, Tilly Olson obviously wrote about uh, sometimes she would try to pick back up her writing after her kids were grown and it didn't work, that the moment had passed. And other times you can you can reconnect with that moment and even um, draw upon all of those experiences where you were busy just kind of hustling to keep a roof over your head. And it's this sort of rich well that's there that's waiting for you. It's it's your life and you get to have it and make art about it because you lived it. Mm -hmm. um, and um, just hanging on to that, mm -hmm. you know, even if you're working a job you hate, um, you know, just writing down what people said or what you were thinking about or anything that you can feed into your practice later. Um, and it's not that linear a lot of times, but um, there's certainly some fantastic examples of of one man or woman shows or amazing bodies of work that happened because someone stuck around long enough to tell the tale. Mm. Um Mm -hmm. You know, I think that's that idea of the long game. You don't always know what is going to end up inspiring your practice, <laughs> but, but the job is you, you lived it, you get to have it, uh, yeah. you can draw from it later. Yep. Yeah. And that your perspective has value like right now, it's not like you need to achieve this thing down the road for your, your viewpoints and your perspective to have value starting where you are right now. And then, and thinking about that as important, um, as an important place to be and how, you know, using that as your, your jumping off point and vantage point, rather than kind of waiting to feel like, okay, now, now I'm, now I can be validated, right? Like you have to sort of thinking about that moment, um, in the present, I think is also important to remember just in terms of general mindfulness as well. Absolutely. Really appreciate both of your contributions to the uh, to the topics of sharing your experiences with nonprofit galleries, and then also folding that those experiences into the discussion around um, you know how how we can support future generations of artists through professional practices uh, pedagogy. Thanks, Steve. Yeah, thanks for having us.